Welcome to Cloudlandia. Welcome to the Cloudlandia Express. Uh-huh. Where it's always open. Yeah, but here's the thing, the the wording of the song that you know, I'm I keep going back to the I keep thinking there's layers of hidden meaning in that song mm-hmm. that you that you chose. Mm-hmm. Now is this someone could this be a song that someone who is tempted to go into Cloudlandia and they're trying to reassure someone who has decided not to go into Cloudlandia? That could be. Let's you know this is we should probably you know what we've done is set up cleverly on the uber conference line that we used to record on hold music is custom and it's rick astley never going to give you up and so yeah. those have been really durable transferable multi-purpose lyrics that fit a multitude yeah. of situations since the song has happened so if we go down the list i'm Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. I mean, certainly all those things are Cloudlandia personified. Yeah, because my, my, my feeling more and more is the secret of the future is to you to use each realm to actually build the other realm. Mm. There you that go. you get better in the mainland and you get better in Cloudlandia and you move back and forth between the two worlds. Speaking of that, I've got a couple of exciting things to new developments, hot off the press, as we say, in my uh, understanding uh, of this bridge. That's where you, what we were really saying. I think we kind of hit on that last week, that this, mm-hmm. this bridge between you know, I think we're coming now to where this is going to be a blended sort of uh, thing. The the mainland Cloudlandia sort of, you know, it's kind of been separate right now up until now, really the last five years. And I think going forward, it's that blend. But here's, I heard a couple of, I've been watching the whole NFT space to see really how that's evolving. And two Really good examples have come up in the last uh, week here. Number one, I heard uh, Gary Vaynerchuk talk about the how NFTs as a, when you talk about music, for instance, bands or performances or any kind of, of artist, where if NFTs are sold, as a ticket to a concert. But he said he can't see in the future, every ticket is going to be an NFT to, to everything, right? Why wouldn't it be? It's a smart, rather than just delivering a email confirmation, you may as well deliver a token with it. That's mm-hmm. a collectible. That's something. And it's imagine if uh, this is my thinking about it later, but imagine if, when the Beatles were performing in Hamburg at concert number one and 30 people showed up in the, in the crowd and they got from that performance, their ticket was, you know, Hamburg night number one. And that was an icon. That was a, uh, you know, that was a token 
that you have that has, you know, a collectible proof that you were there. How much would that be worth today? Mm -hmm. If you had proof ticket stubs from being in the audience at Hamburg when Mm -hmm. the Beatles were, before they were the Beatles, right? Or Mm -hmm. as they were coming up, or when you look at something that became something big, an artist that, you know, an, an, an album that you bought or, you know, your, it's kind of an interesting thing because you support artists, you support jazz artists and you support the arts and, and your musical that is happening. Upcoming, upcoming. Yeah. Um, that mm-hmm. this is going to open up big opportunities for that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. I was just, uh, I was just, yeah, I was just thinking of something because you have, you know, you have what's happening in the present right now. And so people are using their present to be at some place special. And then they get an NFT as proof that they were someplace special or doing something special, you know. And, uh, but I was also thinking from the standpoint, we have these other two realms called the past and the future. Mm-hmm. And it'd be interesting that you could, you know, you could have Mick Jagger explains the 60 years of the, yeah. and he goes back and he, he puts together a history of yeah. how the whole thing got started and what his thinking was and the, you know, a, sort of a crucial factor that he went yeah. to the London School of Economics and that, you know, that he really wanted right from the beginning not only to establish great music but he wanted to establish a really good business model you know mm-hmm. and he could talk about all those things all those things mm-hmm. uh, like like that i mean to a certain extent it's like what alice cooper is doing with his late night with alice cooper where he's explaining what the rock scene what the rock scene was like in the 60s yeah. you know and I talked, I mean, he met, I just had the, you know, kind of the opportunity through Joe Polish to spend dinner time one night sitting with Alice Cooper and his wife. And, uh, you know, and he was, you know, I was just asking him questions about, you know, why did he like doing that? You know, and he says, well, it's really interesting. First of all, it's really good to kind of collect your memories. But he said, The other thing is, he said, it's really a a trip for me because I can say anything I want because there's very few witnesses. There's very few witnesses. Well, the ones uh, the ones who are still alive, they're they're short on they're short on memories, you know. Uh Right, right. You know, yeah, and but you know that becomes very valuable like it's one thing to read the history book but it's a, yeah. another thing to have a special setting where you have access to the actual pioneer the actual creator of that and you know it's got value mhm so you think about that but that's pretty you know this is the kind of thing where yeah the being able to bring the past into the present is yeah, mm-hmm. there's something there really is a more yeah, you think about this to, since two thousand, since we've really sort of digitized, there's much more 
depth of layers of, you know, access to information and, you know, recorded stuff of it. And it's an interesting thing that now, even when something happens, that you can go back now and follow the trail, that there's evidence, you know, like you look at, I was thinking about that with the Bridgerton musical that got the girls on TikTok. I mentioned it to you that they, yeah. uh, I'll just tell the story quickly that they, uh, on TikTok, there was a Netflix show that was very popular and it was set in the 1800s in, in or early 1900s, I guess, in, in England and high society type of uh, thing. And mm -hmm. this young girl, 20 years old, got to thinking, what if Bridgerton was a musical? And she wrote a mm -hmm. song in a musical theater style that was, you know, took TikTok by storm and it went wild and she partnered with another girl and they over, you know, 15 weeks wrote 15 songs and watched that they live streamed the whole process on TikTok. You could watch and see how they're doing the whole thing, watch it all evolve. And then they released the album and the album got nominated for a Grammy. And so mm -hmm. the documenting of all of this, now that it's like a thing, you can go back and trace it to the beginning. Like that, imagine if the Bridgerton musical were to become Hamilton, let's say to go on that level of stature, right? That it takes over and becomes a phenomenon. To be able to digitally trace the trail all the way back to young Abigail in her bedroom saying, what if Bridgerton was a musical? Capturing mm -hmm. the aha moment, you know? Much mm -hmm. like when we were watching Lil Nas X, well, going all the way back and watching his thing when he called his shot. Yeah. And, you know, it's January. Do you remember that? I played that video of him. Well, saying, the, uh, yeah. the other one that's even more um, striking to me is Mr. Beast saying, yeah. you know, I got a study here, but I, you know, I want to set a goal. Can you, can you imagine that I, yeah. you know, sometime in the future, I'd have a million, I don't a even know. Million if it was a million subscribers. A but, million. I said a million subscribers. Yeah, a million. Yeah. And he was like, he, but he had, you know, he was kind of crunched in with it. Yeah, he was crunched in with high school work and he wanted, yeah. you know, and he what, he didn't have any, you know, he didn't have a lot of surplus income and that, everything like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the opportunity that everything is documented and to find the early adopters of things, it's really, it's a, the, the second thing, and then we can unpack it from there. But the second thing that happened is that Gary uh, Vaynerchuk is part of a group that launched a new NFT restaurant in New York that is a restaurant club like Soho House or things like that, where you have to be a member to, to eat there. And they released 3,000 tokens, 3,000 memberships, basically NFTs that were selling. The initial floor was 3000 or $6,000 to 
to ETH. So $6,000 to become a member. And they sold out 1,500 of those and they maintained, retained 1,500 for developing the brand or developing uh, going forward. But they got all of those people who, you know, bought the thing. Mm -hmm. And, but it comes with resale rights as well. So you could sell your membership. Mm-hmm. So there's a marketplace for it and they're selling mm-hmm. for 12 or 13,000 uh, now. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. Scarcity. Yeah. It's that build. There's a lot of, there's a lot of nothing, scarcity. No, nothing creates abundance like scarcity. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but I thought, you know, of the two, that whole idea of, you know, the idea of uh, having, being able to support, pick a winner. Like imagine if you're going to concerts or you're doing things to be able to have that digital mm-hmm. token in your in your thing. Mm-hmm. It's something, yeah. So I do yeah. see now this whole, that's how that whole, you know, the smart contract element of the NFTs is really what's going to be the the big win, I think, out of all of it. Not so much, not about the art per se. Yeah, I was just pondering something because, you know, I've been looking for the, you know, ever since I started coach back in 89, I've been looking for the, the what's the, the master app. The, you know, and so, you know, each of the tools that I create, you know, it's a new way to think about a particular entrepreneurial situation, you know, so basically what the the tools in coach and we have 340 copyrights now of the tools that are, you know, we're up to date with it. We've gone through a massive search of the files and everything just because we were involved with intellectual property as a as a particular situation over the last couple of years. So we have about 340 of them. And you can see that some of them are, as far as the program goes, they're, they're a one quarter tool and some of them are a whole year tool. You know, in other words, you would repeat it three or four times. And some of them take on sort of like permanent status, like the impact builder, <clears throat> moving future, experience transformer, strategy circle. And the reason why I'm on this line of thinking is the new tool that is just about a year old, the certainty, uncertain, I'm calling it certainty, uncertainty, confidence. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. It seems to uh, have a continual new set of uses that I'm being told about by the clients. They say, you know, I was in this situation. And I was trying to hire someone. So the way I hired them was I did, this is the possibility, you know, it's why it's important. There's a breakthrough. There's an advantage to it. That's the possibility. And then I wrote five things down that are certain about it and five things that are uncertain about it. And then the who not hows who would help out with that. And then my mm-hmm. insights down at the bottom. So it's one tool that seems to ask the user to use all sorts of dimensions of their brain and to actually for themselves think something through, but then be in a position immediately to explain to someone else what they're thinking. And it's probably the most contextual of all the tools where 
you're not just giving people content, you're giving them the why all mm-hmm. these things are important out, about a particular situation you know, or a particular possibility. Yeah. And what I'm thinking is that I'm looking, you know, I'm projecting into the future, and uh, you know, to when I'm age 100, it'll be mm-hmm. um, just about 22 years from now. And I was saying, is there anything in the future that this wouldn't be a really useful way to start your thinking mm-hmm. about uh, a certain? And I couldn't. Get, I said, no. It seems to me that it's people will find new uses, and that adds to the value of it because you can do videos of them explaining yeah. how they did, did it. And, and then that's right at the center. And the reason I I want this is John Farrell, who's our IP lawyer mm-hmm. from uh, you know, Silicon Valley. He's a you know, very well-established, very well-reputed IP lawyer. He was, you know, he was in the program for 13 years and he uh, it said, you know, he said, what you're creating here, he said, from my standpoint, you're kind of creating an ecosystem of thinking tools, you know, thinking tools. And he actually used that term that yeah. everything is connected to everything else. If you use one of them, they have connections. So all the 340 that we were talking about, you have, you know, connections in the you know, 340 times 340. I, I don't know what that is, but it's a big right. number. You know, different connections, and then you can have connections between three or four of them. So, you know, so mm-hmm. there's probably. And what I'm thinking about is the possibility right now of applying for a patent with the certainty, uncertainty. And, you know, we've already got the copyright, so we've already got the foothold in the IP world. But uh-huh. then to go back and using the one column in every tool that we have, which is who, not how, that's the link be- between all the tools. They're all who, not how tools inside uh-huh. this mas- master thing. But it seems to me that it would be very easy to turn some of that into smart contracts and turn it, the tools into NFTs. Mm-hmm. I bet. I mean, this is so, you know, I, I think that we're just scratching the surface of what these uh, things well, I are think going we're, to we'll, be. Well, I think my my take on it will always be just scratching the surface. Yeah, right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Huh? Yeah. No, you're Cause absolutely who, right. Because uh, who knows what somebody's going to think up today? You know, you got 8 billion yeah. people. And, and so, you know, uh, is anybody going to think up? Yeah, it's re- I'm interesting. I'm reading a really superb book on the cloud, and it's called oh. The Cloud Revolution by Mark Mills. I think I mentioned it last weekend. I just got mine, uh, actually. Let me check right now. Yeah. I think mine and, arrived yesterday. Yeah. And boy, oh boy, I mean, he's really he's really a great map maker. He's like mapping out the whole new territory. A cartographer, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a cartographer. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have Cape Cod quite right, but you know, you can kind of see where the major rivers are. And, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't have Celebration mapped out yet, but he's got, uh, you know, he's got Daytona Beach and he's got Palm Beach. You can see where uh-huh. Palm Beach and Saint Augustine are, you know, are going to be. And, yeah, you can uh, see the edges. Yeah, you can see the edges. 
But the thing that he says is this is the first time that humans are dealing with somewhat something that is um, unlimited. Yes. And it's information. He said information is unlimited because the moment you take two pieces of information and put them together, you automatically create a, you know, a third information. And mm-hmm. he said the economy is always driven by the thing that's on, that seems closest to unlimited and utterly cheap. You know, mm. if, and anybody can do it. So he said anybody can do this. So I think that. Wow, look at this. I got mine. This is a, you get your money's worth with the words in this book. You do. You really do. <laughs> <laughs> this is value. For, I mean, really. Okay, so, so kind of, you know, page through it and pick yeah. the point in the book that if he hadn't included the other part, you would have felt shortchanged. Right, exactly. This yeah. is uh, looking mine. There looks like there's something embedded inside of mine here. A little secret something in here, maybe. Or it could be just a watermark, but yeah, yeah. This is this is something. <laughs> and, I can't wait and to you dig have a, in. You, you, it sounds to me like you have a mainline version of it, a mainland version of it. I do both. I do that because I, there's nothing I like more than to, you know, dig into. I like to mark the whole book up. too. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's I, you can't like skim. You can't get a sense of the weightiness of a book in uh, on Kindle. Kindle. Like you, you, know, you look at this. I can. I like to. You know, when you're approaching the territory, it's like you get to see it from. 30,000 square feet. You're up on a hill and I can kind of scan. Oh, I'd like to check out this valley here. And Yeah, land, land ahoy. Are you a reader who starts on page one and, and reads through or are you uh, Adler? I do, that with, I do that with fiction. I do that with fiction because of yeah, the story. Okay. And the other one, I do backwards, uh, nonfiction. I start with the conclusion. Okay. okay. Yeah. So then you know and where my, you're coming. Well, my experience is that there's a kind of an urgency and a desperation that authors have when they get to the conclusion. <laughs> that mm-hmm. if if the reader hasn't gotten the point of the book before this, this is their last chance to actually uh, tell the reader what this is all about. Okay. And so I find the conclusion <clears throat> is like the, uh, the conclusion in a nonfiction book is like the opening chapter of a fiction book. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is that in the fiction book, you, you, he gives a setting. And if the, the setting is really good, you're kind of into the very quickly the plot what's going to be discovered in the story you know there's mm-hmm. you know and everything like that and you keep reading until you find out if the promise that's there in the first two or three pages is actually fulfilled mm-hmm. and and the great books are, of course are they're, they're very you know they're extraordinarily good with nonfiction book, nonfiction books, there's a thing that the author wants you to grasp by the end of the book 
that tells you why there's a beginning of the book. <laughs> mm, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And so the mystery in the mystery that's hatched in the fiction starts right at the beginning of the book. But if you start with the conclusion, you'll say, wow, I wonder how he got to this. I, I w- wonder how he got to this conclusion. I wonder how, you know, he proved this and everything else. Mm. So then you begin the process of going a chapter before the conclusion. And I read Mm -hmm. that, and I'm still curious, you know. And so the whole point is that I don't trust any writer's ability in the nonfiction world to give me the information in the order that I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So I start in the back and read for, and I I essentially read backwards. I start at the back and I read backwards. Okay. That's yeah. That's good. Well, chapter one twenty one seems pretty hopeful. Health. The future won't be like Star Trek. It'll be better. Yeah. That's good. All right. Yeah, this is going to be uh, good. So he's really showing how it's affecting all the different. All the well, different he's aspects. really laying out. The, uh, he's giving you a lay of the land. You know, yeah. that's what I really liked about it. Yeah. And I, I've really enjoyed his previous books. I've read two previous books by him. And he's someone that Alex Epstein talks to a lot about energy. Okay. And and he said it's there the he said if you look at the world and who is better off than other people and countries that are better off than other people, the best countries are the ones who waste the most energy. The best countries are the ones who waste the most energy. Yeah, because they use energy to produce higher levels of energy. So, oh yeah, and he says that lasers are the prime example. He says you can't believe the immense amount of waste of energy to get to the point where you can put, you know, you can put these electrons in there straight, and you could have a straight line uh, shot of energy. And he says, and he said, no matter what it costs to get that energy, it seems like waste. It seems like waste to most people. Why are you wasting all that energy to get a laser? He says, because what we can do with lasers pays for all the waste. Right. Wow. See, this is the kind of, so he's kind of a philosopher in a way then. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah. That's what I like about the way these things come at, like a philosophical approach to well um, he, he you know he's fundamentally say, saying probably in the next 10 years he said that we won't recognize the he's what i get from the book so far and i meant you know maybe by kindle standards that might be 10 percent into the book right now okay yeah mm-hmm. and but what he's saying that it's being written you know this book just came out about three weeks ago and what he seems to be saying is that when we get to the 2030 mark or, you know, 10 years down the road and we look back, we won't recognize the world that we left. Yeah, that's what I think is. That's what I think that whole that was where that insufficiently bullish term came from. This idea of that if we're you know, you're sick of hearing about NFTs and blockchain and the cloud and metaverse and 
all that stuff. You're sick of hearing about it now. You, you know, you may as well cover your ears for the next 10 years because it's going to be what the world is in 10 years. Yeah. 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 And so, but here's the thing about it is that what he's suggesting is because of the the way we can combine information now and the way we can transmit information, he said that everybody is going to have the capability to be just kind of about their own business with it. In, in other words, mm-hmm. uh, we're getting to the point that there'll be so much capability available for you that uh, you'll just pick some of the capability and use it for your own purposes. You know, you just, mm-hmm. uh, and there, it's not like there's going to be this great, you know, this great surging of the global mind in unity. It's just the opposite. Everything's going to be totally, everything's going to be endlessly diverse. And, but it's held together by the platforms. It's held together by the, you know, it's held together by the networks and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So no, no problems. You know, the furnace will have sensors in it and it'll make decisions on its own. It'll notice when it's getting a little bit too cool and it'll warm things up. So, you, you know, the everything around you will be thinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's true. Like I saw about another thing this morning about that, these blood sugar monitors and the yeah. uh, things out. But now that's just the tip of the iceberg of that, that, you know, imagine it measuring that, but also measuring, you know, the moment a cancer cell metastasizes or, yeah. or is birthed and that gets alerted right away. Yep. All yep. of these things that once it becomes more capable of, you know, the diagnostic with the information. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, on the trip with the trip with Peter Diamandis, where we had the breakthrough medicine, breakthrough science presented to us uh, that there's yeah. a new cancer that you just take, you know, one blood draw and, you know, you just fill up one tube and you send yeah. it in and within 24 hours, it completely gives you a complete sense, is there anything in your body that shouldn't be there? Right. And then it immediately alerts you where it is, what it is, and where it is. It's it's wild. Yeah. And you know what? You know what? It'll be boring. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we'll just take it like as normal. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, I haven't had too many exciting in-depth discussions recently, this year certainly, about electricity, yeah. the fact that uh, le- electricity is available. Right. I, I find that kind of boring, actually. I actually, I'm totally excited about it. I have an infinite uh, sense of gratitude about electricity. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm a fan of electricity. I, I, yeah, I, you yeah. Know, I've done, I've been without, I've been with, uh, definitely... I favor with. I still can't get over like, you know, you think about, we think that 2030, you know, that everything's going to be, you know, sort of more fully evolved of what we're, what we've kind of reached to here. Because it's been a pretty big change in the last 10 years that, you know, Mm -hmm. to imagine if it advances as much in this coming uh, 10 years or eight years remaining in the 
the decade here. You know, who knows what, but I can't help but look back at, you know, when you look at the timeline of stuff, how settled, that's a good word I'm going to, I think, use to describe the period from 1950 to 1985 as a pretty settled period of growth without a lot of like earth-shaking um, innovation, do you think? And yeah, in the way that we all, you know, uh, yeah, that they're compared to the, you know, it feels like if you look back at the big things, the most innovative period of time that was like game shifting was from in the 1850s. Eight, you know, yeah, the 1850s to 1900 to yeah, 19. That 50 years seemed to be the most like revolution uh, changing yeah. period of time compared yeah, I, to the, what happened you know, from the, 1950 on. Yeah. I think that the, you know, it's the way to compare it is what you didn't have and then you did have it, you know what I mean? But I put together a little thesis. It could be a book someday, but the I have the, I have two sets of them. I have how what changed the U.S. the most since I've been born. This is your, uh, and your observation? Just my own. It's just my mm-hmm. own thing that I was putting together. But it seems to me that there were four things, if you look what, the U.S. was right at the end of the Second World War, yeah. and uh, what really changed. And then the, the first one, I have four things, and the first one was the GI Bill that was provided to the 12 million people who served in the military when they to came back. And there's two, th- two things. They got, yeah, they got college education and they the really good mortgages, okay? Mm-hmm. The next one was the interstate highway system, which and this, you know, went on for before it really got the lower 48 completely linked up. It was about, you know, 35, 40 year period where you could drive mm-hmm. the interstate highway system to the most important city in any state in the lower mm-hmm. 48. OK, and the next one was air conditioning which mm-hmm. suddenly made the South and the Southwest of the United States uh, a place where you could have habitable. industry, you could have habitable yeah. and you could have industry there. And mm-hmm. then the fourth one was the network television, which really, mm-hmm. you know, really. So if you combine network television with air conditioning and the interstate highway system and the GI Bill, those four were multipliers that multiplied each other, and they each strengthened the other. They each took advantage of the other. And they yeah. were all available in 1950, right? That's the. In 1950. We, we, 1950, all of them. All yeah. of those things. But then, if we it just. Uh, that's a really good way of looking, drawing the line, and saying, okay, we didn't have all those things up to 1950. At, nope. at 1950, nope. we had them. Now, what well, did we add? What did we add to that between 1950 and 1985? What did we add in that 35-year period that would be as much of a game changer compared to the just the furthering and development of that foundation that was laid prior to 1950? 
I can think of two uh, okay. that really had an uh, extraordinary impact. One was FM radio, and the mm-hmm. other one was uh, cable television. Cable I think television. both of those, Dan, in fairness, are derivatives. Both of those are furtherance of, you know, if you go from prior to 1950, we didn't have radio. That was just an advancement of radio, FM radio. That's a, a, a add-on. That's a furtherance of it, just like what, you know, the other network television mm-hmm. is an advancement of the core thing, which is television. And this is what I'm wondering now, like comparatively, going forward from 2030, if we say like in this last flurry of things, that all the things that we've developed are going to be manifested there, then where I, I saw it's like, a very it's a very interesting. Mark Mills says that uh, what's going to surprise most people about the go forward with the cloud is yeah. actually in the material world. He says we're now mm-hmm. going to use uh, science empowered by you know artificial intelligence and other things of creating entirely new materials way uh-huh. beyond the chart, chart of period. He said, this is going to be the great material age here. I and thought. he says, and, and he said, we will, he says, we'll create substances that are flexible like rubber, but are stronger than steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and he said, any kind of material you want. And he gives an interesting thing that I found striking. He said when the first microchips were created in the form, you know, that we think of the microchip, you know, it's a little square and it's got all sorts of, yeah. you know, yeah, intricate. He said it used seven materials from the periodic chart. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, and he said the new ones used 73 materials from the periodic right. chart. Yeah. Yeah. And where silicon was the big thing, now silicon is one of the one of the things. There's lots of other stuff that's uh, mm-hmm. really there. And he, you know, like cars, he said everybody talks about EVs. He says all cars are EVs. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. it's not just the ones with the batteries, but he said that you know probably the average car is 400 pounds lighter simply because mechanical parts have been you know a car's got. A hundred yeah. chips in it, you know. Right, and, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so he said, everything is taking on this form where it's filled up more and more with information sensor, you know, sensors and yeah. processors of information, and everything's connected to, you know, to you know, to the word I saw in the book that was, I think, what you're referring to is he said, from dematerializing to rematerializing. That's yeah. the shift. It's essentially gone. Removing everything, and now it's what you're describing is rematerializing. Yeah, and it's very interesting. And I thought this was a noteworthy, a noteworthy event. But yes, on Friday, Intel Intel uh, Corporation said that they're going to build the biggest chip factory in the world, just outside of Columbus, Ohio. Oh wow! So. 
I found that striking. I found that very striking, you know, because virtually all the chip factories that we think about as being important are on the Pacific Rim. That's either on the West Coast of the United States, you know, Southeast Asia, all the chip factories. Uh There's Columbus, Ohio is like mid-America. I mean, this is the beginning of mid-America. And there's going to be the biggest chip factory in the world just by Uh square footage of the chip factory. And they were saying that there's a solidity to the population in Columbus that they don't find another, especially on the West Coast. They said, yeah, you can't. It's too disruptive politically and socially and culturally. We can't put up with that. This, you know, this is something that you amortize over like 25, 30 years, you know, and he says that they're real solid. They got real solid values. And, you know, they have Ohio State has 10,000 students, in it, which is about uh, 15 miles away from this place. Mm-hmm. Ohio State has 10,000 students in their in- engineering school. You know, so, you know, and so I've said, you know, and I remember Peter Zion said, you know, what's going to happen is that the U.S. is going to bring back vital in, you know, manufacturing right, right. back to the United States. But it's going to fill in the middle of the United States, the Great Plains, you know, the Midwest. He said it isn't going to be on the West Coast. It's not going to be on the East Coast. It's going to be it's going to be because the real estate is, you know, the real estate is cheap and the taxes are low. So. So anyway, that just struck me. That just struck me as I said, you know, it's a real. I'm, well, I'm from Ohio. You know, I'm I grew yeah. up about 100, 120 miles north of where they're talking about. Right. And, uh, you know. And just kind of down to earth, you know, Ohio is yeah. sort of down to earth people. And what it tells you now is that's no longer, no longer has shock value yeah. building facility like that. There, there's no, you know, this is the future. You no, know, this is, yeah, you know, this is the present actually, you know. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You know, I'm no, curious. So it's really, though, I was going to say, I'm curious, you mentioned network television as one of the big things. How did you see that? How do you see that as, you know, be having the big impact prior to 1985? Well, first of all, in 1950, hardly hardly anyone had television sets. Yeah. And 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 by 1960. And by 1960, everybody had television sets because of the networks, the three net. I mean, NBC was the first. They had television in the 30s, you know. But yeah. it was, you know, it was if you lived within about 10 miles, you know, 10 miles of the place, like in New York mm-hmm. City, you would get television. But there was no television. I mean, nobody had television. Right. And, yeah. And but all of a sudden, by 1960, everybody had a television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the reason I think that FM radio was created in the 1930s, but RCA, I think RCA, uh, Radio Corporation of America, created mm-hmm. FM radio, but it was owned by NBC. And NBC had a real, they had a coast to coast iron grip on radio. Mm-hmm. And they thought that the quality of FM was so much greater than than AM because mm-hmm. you, 
you got to storm out outside. It doesn't really matter. FM sounds good. Right. You know, it doesn't right. And, and why I think it was such a big thing is that it created the polarization between political polarization that we're involved in right now. And I think it also, uh, I think cable television also created the polarization because up until then, the networks kind of agreed with each other. Everybody, you know, everybody got the same messages on radio. Everybody got the same messages on TV. But once you get FM, it was the left that went to FM. So if you go to any major city, there's a two or three major, two or three major FM stations that are usually based in universities. They're, they're in the universities. And they're, you know, they're the intellectuals. It's for the intellectuals. Mm-hmm. You'll have a jazz station. You'll have a classical yeah. music station. You'll have NPR. You know, right. and there's two public radio. There's NPR and there's another one. But they're the the thoughtful people, the educated people. FM is for that. And they vacated AM, and who picked it up? It was the country hicks that picked it up, picked up on mm. AM radio. And it was the evangelists, the you know the religious evangelists uh, mm-hmm. who picked up. So it was the working class. AM became the working class. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh was the great. All I those mean, talk, had, uh, talk radio became yeah the yeah talk radio yeah mm-hmm. shock radio really right shock radio okay. talk radio you know and everything. So that's what FM did, and the cable television just fragmented. Every area of, you know, every everything, the cable just, I mean, you, you know, it, you could just have these very specialized stations, you know, you didn't have overview kind of uh, stations. I mean, <clears throat> Walter Cronkite, you know, was, we still remember Cronkite because he was the central broadcaster when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. Mm-hmm. And I remember Walter Cronkite just looking at the camera and just sort of shaking his head, you know, like just wow, you know, like that. You're and everybody, right. you know, everybody, everybody said, we were there when Walter Cronkite did that. And the other thing was the 1968 in the fall of 19, or spring of 1968 was the famous Tet Offensive in, in Vietnam, which was broadcast and described by the New York Times, Life Magazine, Time Magazine, and the network broadcasters that the U.S. had failed the war. We were losing the war when, in fact, it was just the opposite. Uh, It was a wipeout. It was that battle that the Viet Cong were actually destroyed as an active fighting force. And Mm -hmm. uh, Walter Cronkite uh, said, we're losing the war. And Lyndon Johnson, who was president, he said, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the country. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But there's no, there's nobody on television if he says something that has that kind of impact. He was the last. Yeah, that his generation. I mean, there were yeah. Huntley and Brinkley, Huntley and Brinkley, you know, yeah. you had all these people and that, that was the end of it, you know. But now, you, you, know, didn't, you no longer had a... Yeah. I think we're at that stage now, though, Dan, where when Jimmy Donaldson says something, a whole generation listens. And when Addison Ray says something, a whole generation listens. Now, you don't know 
maybe. It's very clearly uh, it's not my generation. <laughs> I was just going to say, but Jimmy Donaldson is Mr. Beast. Oh. So Mr. Beast has the voice of, you know, 70 million people. But there's probably yeah. nobody who's had that reach since Walter Cronkite. Now, which is really an interesting thing. If you take this idea that YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter, are Instagram, are the big ABC, NBC, CBS, they're the big homogenous tubes that everybody is, you know, getting their exposure from. They're both shouting out and observing, you know, yeah. it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting thing that that kind of, yeah, I wonder where I can tell you who I think, you know, at the level of, you know, political talk right now, yeah. the person who has the greatest influence right now is Joe Rogan. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And there's an example of it exactly that, you know, on Spotify, podcast yeah he's got 11 he's got 11 million which in the podcast world is amazing yeah and the reason is it's amazing is that podcasts are forever yes yeah yeah so he's got 11 million that download each episode yeah okay but when someone just discovers joe rogan they discover his previous 200 podcasts yeah so you know they're all brand new they're all brand new yeah you know it's yeah uh, you know, something that he might have done 10 years ago is brand yeah. new to the listener. Yeah, that's the truth. Uh, you know what? It's very, um, yeah, that's a very uh, good thing. Every I mean, you're, uh, you're, you know, you're, I love marketing would be with you and Joe. Yeah. I bet there's, I uh, bet there's young people today who are just discovering I love marketing. And yeah. they say, you can't believe it. You can't believe it. There's 280 of them or, you know, whatever yeah. the number is. I don't know what the number of them. is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 380 of them. And more. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, <clears throat> if you binged without eating, you'd die on the fourth day, you know. <laughs> what a treasure trove, right? Yeah, I mean that whole yeah. that whole thing. It's so. And that's there'll what, be doctor. Yeah. There'll be doctoral thesis on this someday. You know, the, like you know the, you know these two individuals uh, talking well, about marketing. That's the great thing. That's the great thing about the grand you know archive of everything. We're, we're in HD. Everything is captured. You know, I mean everything of of note of significance is captured in digital form uh, yeah. some way and uploaded into the public record, you know, accessible like that. It's such a, yeah. If only there were some way we could, you know, mm-hmm. increase our available attention units mm-hmm. to be able to consume the stuff. Mm-hmm. That would be something. But it is, you know, my first thought, Dan, when I held that book in my hand was thinking to myself, it's so unlikely that I'm going to be able to read all of this. Like, it's interesting, right? Like my stamina for 
that kind yeah, of but read the uh, read the conclusion and decide yeah. whether you're gonna you're gonna read uh, the chapter before oh i'm that. definitely gonna read i'm gonna get a good sense of it but you know remember yeah. 30 years I would ago read the conclusion i would read mm -hmm. the conclusion and then yeah. just look through the chapters and pick the next chapter that seems in yeah i was looking it's perfectly it's perfectly set up for that because it's basically yeah. chapter after chapter of his commentary on how it's going to affect all kinds of different industries. Yeah, I yeah. think he's a, a deep thinker about these things. I mean, when you think about the the book that put a lot of people on the road to this was in the uh, Future Shock, Alvin Toffler, mm -hmm. uh, and that. But Alvin Toffler uh, knew nothing. I mean, he wasn't a scientist or anything. He was a, yeah. He was basically a journalist. Mark Mills really knows this stuff. I mean, you know, he's in his 60s, and I bet he's been deeply immersed in this stuff for 40 years. You know, I mean, what's his background? You know, well, he is a, you know, I mean, he is someone who's he's been a commentator on energy has been his big thing, you know, how okay. energy gets produced. And that, you know, takes you into, you know, it takes you, it takes a lot. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, just reading there's these little statistics that just pop out uh but he said they they now have cameras that can take 12 let's see if i get the number right here 10 trillion photographs a second uh, images a second 10 trillion That's crazy and he says we can actually photograph chemical chemicals merging with each other and he says we can watch it for minutes and hours watching a chemical um you know reaction and everything else and you know wow it's amazing i think that they can now get break up one molecule of blood they can break it down they can break it down into a trillion different parts and see what's making up that blood and wow. you know uh, it's all measure, you know, it's all what you can see. It's the tools for measurement that drive progress. Huh. This is pretty amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Interesting. Uh, so may you live in interesting times. Is that the uh, saying? <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, someone else said live long, live long and prosper. That's right. I like that one better. Let's adopt that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about interesting whether that. What's he mean by that? You know, I mean, right? Yeah, it's actually a curse. It's actually a curse in China. Yeah, it's not, it's not saying hope. Hope it goes well. You know, right, exactly. Like that. But Spock with live long and prosper. You know, that's you're wishing someone well. I can get behind that. Yeah, yeah, I can get behind that. That's good. Very All righty. Well, Dan, I are never-endingly interesting to me. I enjoy these yeah, conversations. Well, there's no end to it. I mean, I guess that's, that's never-ending means. <laughs> 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 uh, never, never. <laughs> but, but what's happening between us since the very beginning kind of indi indicates how things are going to go in the future. It's just the next thing that you get to. You know, yes, there's always the next thing, you know, yeah, and, we're um, just sitting on the yeah. train. You just need to sit on the train and keep your eyes peeled because yeah. we're in the middle of it. I mean, you know, like the Hamilton, you look around <laughs> how lucky we are to be alive right now. 
I mean, this is amazing. Things are happening. We've got a seat on the train. We just keep our eyes open and we'll talk at the next stop, you know? Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. So next next week, it'll be one o'clock your time. Okay, I can. Uh, I'll be I'll be I'll be checking in at, at ten o'clock San Diego time. So okay, perfect. And, uh, yeah, all righty. I'm okay, going to take an airplane. I'm going to take one of them their airplane flight. I saw that. I also uh, saw we've moved three zones yeah, to. Uh, yeah, I mean we had three Britain. people signed up for. Uh, we had three people signed up for. You know, they have to phone the hotel. You know, and yeah, and uh, you get that. And three people had phoned the hotel by. Uh, so we're saying there's still uncertainty. They're sending a the message. Air. Yeah. There's yep. still uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. No, it wasn't the Hound of the Basketball. It was, a, it was another one. But he says, Watson, I draw your attention to the incident of the dog barking in the night. Mm-hmm. Watson, and Watson said, there wasn't any dog barking in the night. And Holmes says, exactly. Exactly. The dog knew the assassin. The dog knew the assassin. Otherwise, he would have barked. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Okay. That's something. Okay. I'll talk to you uh, next week. Okay. Bye.